Michael Easley in context. Justification is not just as if I never sinned. Never say that definition out loud around me. It's a horrible definition of justification. Justification is the work of Jesus Christ to declare you righteous. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. I doubt any of us have been untouched by cancer. You know, it seems we all have a friend, a family member. We know someone who's battling cancer. When cancer strikes, it strikes our heart with fear. And before long, we're looking at a myriad of treatment options, traditional medicine, alternative approaches, on and on it goes. Imagine for a moment there is one definitive cure for all cancer. It works. Every patient who goes to this treatment is guaranteed to come out cancer-free. Would we try it? Would we accept it? Would we embrace it? When it comes to the spiritual cancer that we all have, death, there is a cure. There is a cure for our sin condition. And it comes through a gift by way of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's join the program in process, a message given at the Moody Bible Institute. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 are very common to all of us. We know it well. We can quote it backwards and forwards in the King James and the NIV. But often we forget verse 10. Let me read it and you try to listen from a fresh set of ears. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let me give you a couple of quick definitions. Grace, of course, is the means by which we are saved. Grace is not simply undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. It's not just that God decided to overlook our sins and like we overlook a child's minor disciplinary issue. God, by his grace, didn't just overlook it and say, okay, I give you a walk, I give you a bye, I give you a do-over. Grace is his unmerited favor in face of deserved wrath. How do we embrace this? How do we get it? Faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the means by which, we might say the embracing, the connecting, the way we appropriate grace and salvation. I put my trust in someone. I believe in them to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I've shared with you before, many times in my postgraduate degree, I had to have help. I had to find people who were smarter than me, who were better than me, and say, will you help me? And they said, sure, I'll be happy to help you. And I've trusted them to do for me what I could not do for myself. I've had a few minor surgeries in my life. And when I tell that doctor, uh, will you fix me? And he says, sure, I can fix you. It won't be a problem. They always say that, by the way. Um, You go under. And have you ever thought about when they put that IV in you and you go to sleep, what could possibly happen to you? I mean, they could draw pictures on you. They could make funny, they could videotape you and make you do funny things under the influence of anesthesia. They could take the wrong organ. It happens. They can also make a mistake and kill you. 
There's a morbidity rate at almost every surgery. They tell you, okay, there's a 1% morbidity, meaning out of 100 people who get this surgery, one dies. And when I say yes to that doc and he puts me out, I am trusting him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. When you trust someone, you are saying, I believe in you, I put my faith in you, I put my mental, my heart, my kind of whole in you to say, you know what, I trust you to do this thing. You're gonna do something for me I cannot do for myself. Grace through faith, it's a gift of God. And the word is so profound. It's something God gives. We can't fix it, we can't appropriate it, we can't earn it. It's a gift. I don't know about you, but the last time someone gave me a birthday present, I did not pull out my wallet and say, can I reimburse you? How silly. Now, being Americans and humans, we say, oh, they gave me something for my birthday, I better remember giving them something for their birthday. That's what Christmas cards were all about, by the way. It's a sort of, you know, sickness we do. Oh, they didn't send us one this year, they're off the list. (laughs) Who cares, right? Somebody cares somewhere. But it's this tit-for-tat thing. No, 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 no. If a gift is a gift, I gave it to you. When we were adopting our first child, a neighbor that I barely knew walked across the street and handed me a check for $1,000. was the largest gift anyone had ever given me in my life. I was stupefied. I said, Charlie, why are you doing this? He said, Martha and I love you. I said, you don't even know us. He said, oh, we've been watching you for about a year. (laughs) Why would you do this? We just love you. What can I do for you? Not a thing. We want to help you. It's a gift. Still blows me away to think about it. And you've had gifts given to you. And you're overwhelmed by them. It's a gift. No good work earns a gift. Good works gain no attention before God before a person knows Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. No good work will gain God's attention before you know Christ. I remember talking to a friend about this years ago, thinking, how do we communicate this in a clever way? And he had a great illustration. He said, imagine that California is earth and Hawaii is heaven. That's not hard to imagine, right? (laughs) And imagine you got to swim from California to get to Hawaii to be saved. Your ability to swim is not your physical prowess like some world-class swimmer like Esther Williams or someone. Your ability to swim are your good works. So when the Chicago Marathon went pow and everybody started down the street, we have this big from God. He says, go. And all humanity on the edge of the California coastline starts to swim like crazy to go to Hawaii. Those who have the best works win. So... It's probably politically incorrect to say this, but let's just say it among friends. People like Hitler and Mussolini, we're just stomping them on the beach as we go in the water. Because they're evil, wicked, full pot kind of people. Just kill them and go, right? I know it's incorrect. We'll erase it from the tape. It'll be fine. So then as you're swimming along, you're swimming like crazy because you've got a few good works, and there goes Mother Teresa. Nobody can swim faster than Mother Teresa. Can you see that blue and white thing? I mean, just, you know, head above the water smiling, you know? Maybe D.L. Moody's out there swimming like crazy. Maybe Billy Graham's walking on the water. Florence Nightingale's floating over the water. I don't know. 
If good works get you to Hawaii, that's whose coattails I'd want to be on, but good works get no attention from God prior to a person's salvation. And Paul knew this when he wrote these words, men and women. He said, it's not a result of works, and we all say, yeah, it's a gift, but look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. You were God's work. Why? You were made to do a work. That's what the verse says. Keep reading. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's, he's separating works from salvation so clearly, and we missed the verse entirely. You can't do it. You are a product of work. And by the way, your works are what God designed you to do, not for salvation, just to serve him. The best way I can articulate it is your good works and mine are the way we say thank you to God for a salvation so rich and so free. Your good works and mine are a small way we say thank you to God for our salvation so rich and so free. I have four children, you know, two of them are very grateful creatures. One of them still delights my heart to this day. They just say thank you for every little thing. They say thank you all the time. I remember getting this child a bike when she was four years of age. For like a week she said, thank you, Daddy, thank you, Daddy. The first day we showed it to her on her birthday, she goes, this is her birthday, is this mine? She was stunned. She looked at it, she sat on it, she hugged, she kissed, she looked at it, she sat on it, she, she said thank you all along. She goes, thank you for my bike, thank you for my bike. Now, do you know what it does to a father's heart when their child says thank you? There's no greater joy. Then, then you say, what else would you like? <laughs> I have two other children that I remind them often how grateful they should be. <laughs> you should be grateful. And you know what? In the flesh, in the sinful soul of my center, I get frustrated when my children are ungrateful. I get frustrated when they compare their lives with other people who seem to have more. I am the only father in the universe who will not have an Xbox or a Nintendo in the house. There's no other father ever born. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not some big thing. I just find it interesting that everyone else in the world has at least six. And we have none. I say, read a book. They say, I hate reading. I say, well, learn to love it. Next subject. <laughs> and they complain about all the things they don't have. Now, put some shoe leather on this. Your Father in heaven who loved you when you were unlovely, who by grace through faith you appropriated salvation so rich and so free, he said, you can't do anything that gets my attention, but here's a gift. And you welcome that gift, and you say the rest of your life, thank you, thank you, thank you. What do I do to show my thanks? Do the good works I gave you to do. How do I show you thankfulness? Do the good works I gave you to do. Not a thing wrong with good works, men and women. In fact, they're downright biblical. Christ Jesus he made you four good works that you should walk in them. Now, the Reformation was really about this issue. The Reformation was about, okay, what do I have to do to get saved? Do I have to do some set of works so I can swim like Mother Teresa? Or do I understand that it is by grace alone, by faith alone? And this, of course, is what separated perhaps the largest 
schism in so-called Christianity historically. The law only proves wrong. The law of the one prohibition in Adam. Do this, it's all over, anything else you can do. So what do we do? We do the one thing we can't do. I'll give you ten commandments. See if you can manage those. Can't manage those. All right, we'll give you 300 as the prophets continue to egg on and glom on. How do you manage those? Very poorly. Law only shows what I do wrong. Law never awards for doing right. Now, mingled in our bloodstreams is somehow we have this right when we're caught. Let's say, first of all, let's back up. When you and I sin and we know we're guilty, after we move from the blame casting and the defense mechanism, because we typically do when, we're, when we sin and we're found out, we defend ourselves or we blame cast. Once we move beyond that, there's something in our conscience, our hearts, our mind that says, you know what, I gotta do something right to fix this, right? Don't look at me like that. There's something in your soul that when you know you're busted, you say, what do I need to do now? That proves the law is incapable of producing good. All the law can do is show you how bad. It can't show you what to do for good. Luther said, we're beggars all, right? I remember one of my professors in grad school said, every year, students would come back and confess they'd cheated on an exam. I shared with you last year a person who wrote a letter to me, an octogenarian, a person in his 80s, who cheated when they were at Moody. And with tears, wrote this long letter. I called him and talked to him on the phone. It was one of those moments I slipped off my shoes talking to this man. It broke in his heart. How stupid could he have been? He loved the school so much. He felt he betrayed the school and he betrayed the Lord. And we had a wonderful, wonderful talk. My professor back in grad school said, every year someone comes back and says, you know, I lied, I cheated, I stole, I did wrong. Now, this professor was very interesting. He sort of liked to let people squirm a little. He's sort of a sick guy. <laughs> and as this person would kind of squirm in the office, and cry and confess, the professor always said this. He said, you know, that's the problem with sin. It makes a big mess, and you can't ever clean it up. And then he said, the school has no policy on these things. We don't hold it over your head. We don't pull your diploma. And the fact that God's been working you over means more to me than anything. For my part, you're forgiven. God bless you. Stay strong. Keep short accounts. Next time you sin, just admit it right away. And don't let it eat your lunch. I was witness to a restoration service where two people had egregiously offended God in a church through some sordid affairs and divorces and remarriages and come back to ask for forgiveness. And I heard a woman stand in front of a completely packed meeting room of probably 2,000 standing along the sides say, I have not had a decent night's rest in seven years because of my sin. I will walk over glass to get rid of the guilt. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Because when we sin, there's something inside that says, what do I do to get rid of the sin? A person in work of Jesus Christ 
is the only sufficient means for our sin condition. If there was another way to get saved, why would he have sent his son? I have a friend in another religious tradition that does all the rituals and all the merits and all the things you have to do, and they say with clutched hands and broken hearts, I know Jesus died for my sins, but I must do all that I can to atone for them. And it breaks my heart. They just can't see beyond the foolishness of good works before they've trusted Jesus Christ and the inefficiency of good works to secure or ensure their salvation. Justification, redemption, other terms become whetstones for how we understand this. How is a person made righteous? Romans 3 is a chock-full chapter. You should know inside and out. It's the whetstone of sharpening the concept of how we're made righteous, what justification by faith means. Justification is not just as if I never sinned. Never say that definition out loud around me. That's a horrible definition of justification. Justification is is the work of Jesus Christ to declare you righteous. It's not just as if you never sinned. It's Jesus Christ sacrificed life, death, burial, resurrection on the cross, on Calvary, overcoming the grave, new life, able to say to his father, I paid for that. I justified them. I declare them righteous. They can't do a thing to get your attention apart from me. It's all about Christ and the beginning and the end. He's the only one who can provide our salvation so rich and so free. A good compression of a number of these ideas is in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 3, 4, and 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. God's mercy caused you and me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You think about your inheritance waiting for you. I've studied kleronomion and kleronomios and klera and all the tangent words about inheritance. I don't know what it means, guys. But I will tell you this, somehow sewed into your salvation is this inheritance that is imperishable that awaits you. And it's waiting for you in heaven. I almost see it like when you go into a really nice hotel, there's a gift waiting there with your name on it. There's some spiritual inheritance waiting those in Christ. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's a current reality to our salvation and an ultimate reality to our future. Let me give you four final observations, and then I want to read a very long quote that you will hopefully indulge me in. Number one, salvation is only through innocent blood. Salvation is only through innocent blood, Hebrews 9.22. Number two, salvation is only through a person. We have all kinds of illustrations, whether it's an advocate in a courtroom, whether it's a transplant operation for someone who's going to give an organ for you to live and die. There has to be substitution. There has to be a person. Thirdly, salvation is only by grace. 
It is the means by which we're saved that God was gracious toward us. Fourth, salvation is only through faith. The only way we appropriate it, the only way we embrace it, is to be in Christ Jesus by faith, to put your trust in him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's what it means to believe, to trust, to have faith. I came across this accidentally. It's a 1945 quotation from Lewis Berry Chafer. It breaks all the homiletical rules to read this long of a quote. I know that so the professors won't have to tell me later. I've tried to edit it down. I tried to shorten it up, and I said, you know what? I'll just ask you all to listen, and I'll try to read well. The preacher is an important link in the chain which connects the heart of God with the souls of lost men. Concerning all other links in this chain, it may be remarked that there is no deficiency in the provision of redemption through the sacrifice of Christ. There is no flaw in the record of that redemption revealed in the oracles of God. There is no weakness or failure on the part of the Spirit. There should be no omissions, defects, derelictions in the preacher's presentation of redemption to those for whom it is provided. When seriously contemplated, the responsibility of gospel preaching cannot but solemnize the heart and be the cause of an ever-increasing dependence upon God. It is not to be wondered at that the apostle, speaking for the Holy Spirit, declares with that unique emphasis a twofold repetition, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than which has already been preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. This anathema has never been revoked, nor could it be so long as the saving grace of God is to be proclaimed to a lost world. From the human point of view, a misrepresentation of the gospel might be so misguided that a soul might lose his way forever. It behooves the doctor of souls to know the precise remedy for which he is appointed to administer. A medical doctor may, by error, terminate what is at best only a brief life. (laughs) But the doctor of souls is dealing with an eternal destiny. Having given his son to die for lost men, God cannot but be exacting as to the great benefit it is presenting. Nor should he be deemed unjust if he pronounces an anathema on those who pervert the one and only way of salvation. A sensitive man realizing these eternal issues might shrink from the responsibility so great. But God has not called his messengers to such failure. He enjoins them preach the word, and assures them of his unfailing presence and enabling power. Probably at no point in the whole field of theological truth is the injunction more applicable when Scripture says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You and I, have the very gospel of Jesus Christ 
the one, the only means of salvation. How will you handle it? Father in heaven, we marvel at salvation so rich, so free, so great, so hard to grasp. We wonder why you would love the likes of us. But we sure thank you. Enlarge our vision of your salvation. Encourage us to be the best representatives of Christ. By your Spirit's power we ask. Amen. I would like nothing better than to hear from you where you are on your spiritual journey. would love for you to come by michaelisleyincontext.com. Leave me a voicemail. Send me a message. I would love to know where you are on your spiritual journey. If you have some good questions, I'd like to have an opportunity to answer them. Because my greatest hope, my greatest prayer, my greatest concern is that everyone who hears this or shares it with a friend, that you know, that you know where you stand with Christ. He loves you. He made a way for you. And the greatest gift he's given in the personal work of his son is salvation. This is Michael Easley in Context. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at michaelincontext.com.